0: digitization you know all of the kind of things that a big company has and then on the front lines we have people that come in who are putting skin in the game that are owning their own business and they have to go through in my day we had a six-week training program to inculcate i mean, i addressed every new class at duncan Noon university we call it ddu and and they would learn how to make 200 dozen donuts otherwise they'd get their money back and they couldn't buy a franchise two weeks of management training opening crew helping get started
1: Day on the show, I've got Robert Rosenberg. Robert, thanks for making time. My pleasure. So for people who don't know your history with Dunkin' Donuts and everything else you've done, can you give people a quick preview?
0: A real thumbnail. Basically, it was a family business. I got the nod when I was just a kid, 25 years old, sort the of cocky fresh out of business school to take over the family business, which was called Universal Food Systems. I ran that business for 35 years with lots of ups and downs. And a lot of, we had a good deal of success, but a lot of setbacks. And then when my playing days were over, I was an adjunct at, at Babson teaching entrepreneurship in the in the graduate school, and a trustee of the college, and also serving on boards of other food service companies, and codifying really what I had learned in the 35 years, because in order to teach it, I had to think back, and like, oh, my goodness, what did I learn? And I put that all down in a book at the urging of some people who said, you know, there's there's a lot of experience. Few people have actually run a business for 35 years and made the kind of mistakes or run into the same kind of crises that you had. It might be a value. And that's basically what I did. I wrote this book called Around the Corner to Around the World. And it's now been published by HarperCollins. I'm proud to say. And it was published the last Tuesday on October 13th and is now available for sale.
1: Well, congratulations for, for getting that done. I, I hear from people that's a big undertaking.
0: It is. It, it, it actually is the third book. But the first one, I really held myself. I, I wrote a book in 68, but with the help of a co-writer. And then I wrote a textbook while I was at Babson about franchising the creation of a wealth creative model. And that was more of a textbook. I also had help of students. So I really wasn't carrying the big oar as I was in this one. And this, this one was a, a real education for me in terms of learning a, a new industry and how it operates and, and getting a project.
1: So some of these stats, I don't know that everyone knows this story. So 1963, you guys had about 100 locations, is that right?
0: Yeah, the company that I took over when I came out of business school, I was out of business school quick. I was offered this job. My my dad had a partner. He broke up with his partner. uh, The partner took the money from the breakup of their company and started a competitive business called Mr. Donut. And you can just begin to imagine the kind of Inner conversations and the kind of conflict of business is hard enough, competition is hard enough, but when it's family and who's going to get the credit and who's going to be bigger. So it just sort of preoccupied everything in our lives. And, and so the, the business I took over was uh, eight little businesses. And while I was in business school, basically thought about narrowing it down, came to the conclusion that a, a young business, a new business, can die not only of starvation in terms of not getting enough capital and not enough uh, manpower. And it's early as you can also die of indigestion. Now, our business was making about $100,000 a year, so it wasn't dying, but it certainly wasn't flourishing. And Mr. Donut, of all things, was overwhelming the one business in our midst that we could fix up and go to market with, which was really basically our strategy. So we were almost neck and neck in 1963, and that's when I got the call. While I was in school, my dad was so frustrated at the fact that his business wasn't moving in the right direction. He was trying to sell it. Uh, he wanted always to be a millionaire. He was an eighth grade educated guy. And he wanted to be a millionaire after taxes. And And we went to a private equity buyer in, in New York. Luckily, he passed. And he wasn't going to pay a million and a half dollars for business earning $100,000. And my father, I don't think he had many options. So he turned to his 25-year-old son and, and asked if I wouldn't help.
1: And, and do I understand when you retired as CEO in 98, was it Sixty-five hundred locations doing like two and a half billion at that point.
0: Yeah, I lost track of the numbers. I I think it was closer to twenty-five hundred Duncans and about twelve hundred or thirteen hundred Baskin Robbins. I was responsible for those, and and fifty uh, Togos, which is a chain in California that we had purchased. So so it was it was closer to you know thirty-five hundred or four thousand outlets. But but it was a big business and it was earning then. 120 million dollars a year in trading profits. The year I took over was 100,000. So I went from 100,000 to 120 million dollars. So, so it was a long ride, but it was a bumpy one. It was lumpy.
1: So you know that that incredible, you know, from 100,000 to 100 million. That, that's pretty big. That's pretty big jump. <laughs> when you think about maybe things people don't realize that it takes for that kind of growth, what are what are some things that people who haven't done that may not understand?
0: i I think there may be four things that that I would pass along. The first is you've got to be fortunate enough to be in the right industry in our case the away from home food industry was really a huge wind at our back. You know after the Second World War, one out of three women worked in out of the home by the time I retired, that was up to two out of three women worked out of the home, and as a result of that, they had to replace home cooking with foods that were convenient and of great value. And that was the driving force behind the growth of the QSR industry, the quick service restaurant industry. So you've you got to be fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. The second thing is I think you really have to be committed uh, to try to solve a customer's problem continuously better than the competition. That fundamentally, there are a lot of people trying to do things to satisfy people. And, you, you, you know, you basically have to be your purpose in life has to do it better than everybody else. And that's a full core press all the time, 24-7, never stops, requires agility. And I would say that the third thing is really a great product. And then the fourth thing, probably the most important, at least the rags of my, is basically you have to have a great team. You know, this sort of notion that there's one person on a white horse that's responsible for success is not my experience. My experience is exactly the opposite. When you pull back the curtain, you'll generally find In our case, there were like 10 or 15 of us that have been together for 20 years. We built the business. And it was a complimentary group. I by no means had the answers. And and my best ideas, my best counseling came from my own colleagues. And I was blessed with just extraordinary people. My COO and I were friends and respectful. I might've been the outside guy, but couldn't have done it without him. And the same thing was true. Guys that head up marketing, purchasing, you read the book, You'll see that he, I wrote the book also, not only to pass along experience, but also to say thank you to the people that made the business successful. The franchise owners and their stories, I think, are inspiring. And, and, and this band of people, it wasn't until later that I woke up to the real advantage of having women. I grew up in a sort of the madman era, unfortunately, and, and woke sort of late in the game. But, but these people, mostly in the early years, were all men, but then later were men and women that really built the business. So is
1: that kind of the main themes in the book? Or tell us what the main themes in the book are.
0: It, it's, it's It's a buffet. It basically, there's something in it for everybody. You know, it starts off, if you're a new entrepreneur, it talks about the importance of persistence and second chances. So the start of the Dunkin' Donuts business was, was second and third chances. It, it didn't flourish right from the get-go. It came out of a business. That f- it was small. It was unsuccessful. It was even called Dunkin' Donuts. It was many tries before we got it right. So so persistence is one. Uh, a second thing is the importance of apprenticeship. So the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, you really got to know your trade. Luckily, I sort of grew up virtually over the store, did a lot of jobs when I was a kid. So at least I knew that the industry I was going into, I knew a lot about it. Uh, I might not have been a full-baked CEO by any means at 25, but I did know some things. And uh, so uh, it also it, uh, would appeal to anybody that's, sort of scaling a business, going through what I call adolescence, as we did, learning the planning techniques. I'm very granular about about mission, objectives, strategic levers, tactics, about what the job is. I t- tell each of the six eras of each around five years each through the prism of a CEO. And there are four functions I think a CEO really has to be on top of, which are Shepherding strategy, organizing, recruiting, retaining an organization, implement that strategy, communicating to align people behind it, and managing crisis when, when it occurs. So those are the the functions that I that I see as a CEO. So I tell that story, and then for larger companies that may be publicly owned, I go through the kind of unique way we organized our board, our board our board meetings, which were different than I think most boards. Not that we didn't look at P&Ls and what was going on in terms of numbers. But we had a much broader, bigger way of going to the board in terms of engaging them and having them help us. It also helped me not make the same mistakes I made in the second five years of my administration. So that's all in the book.
1: Well, what I'm excited about it is there's an audio. I just found it on Audible. I'm just buying it right now
0: so I can listen to
1: it. Okay.
0: (laughs) You and my daughter. (laughs) My daughter it was one of my beta readers. She just told me last night that she's just finishing it when she got her audio versions.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So I, I'm interested because I understand you've been on some pretty impressive boards as well, like Domino's and Sonic. Is that right?
0: Yep, I know. And then I served on some private equity boards as well, too, some, for, for, okay. some private equity boards.
1: So I'm thinking, you know, starting with Duncan and Baskin-Robbins, you know, I grew up in Canada where Tim Hortons is like a religion, right, for... All the hockey lovers and snowboarders. Tim's
0: so. was an able competitor. The fellow that actually built that company, a guy by the name of Ron Joyce, was a very close friend of mine. And I mentioned him throughout the book. He he used to have me up to Hamilton, which, where he had a beautiful home on, on on a lake. And he would always tease me. He was going to sell me the company. He was always <laughs> tired. to figure out the values of his business. So, I mean, I had known him well. Unfortunately, he just passed away. But but he and I were close friends for, for a good number of years. So I'm very familiar with the Tim's story. And one of my former colleagues was actually uh, i think c o o for Tims for a good number of years too,
1: well, even though I've lived mostly either in California or now outside of Park City out west, the way I hear people talk about Duncan, especially like you know Boston where you went to Harvard for school and places like this, I hear that like that fervor like back home for for Tims like when when you think about a brand that becomes that beloved and and just the, the memories that people have about summer nights taking kids to Baskin Robbins or going with their dad or their grandpa or parents or whatever. What kind of, what do you think you guys did different that, that really created that love that, that not all the brands get? I
0: think just being consistent and executing over and over again and giving people things that taste delicious, that resonate in their memories. You don't know how, warm it is, how warming it is for me because wherever I go, people tell me the story about how they were when they were a child and they went into this, into their local Tim's or Dunkin' and picked out their first donut. And it resonates. It says family. It says warmth. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that we really view ourselves as putting a skip in people's steps. I really see sort of everybody's got a natural them throughout the day. They start the morning, they need a little pick-me-up, and they need a little treat. And then at 10 o'clock, they need a coffee break. And then again, you know, at 3 o'clock, it's, you know, there's a reason for tea time. It fits the biorhythms of what people require to get them through the rest of the day to the night until the last night snack. Well, that's our job. We basically have to fill that consistently better. I would tell you our coffee specifications alone, just to get coffee to the to the to the customer takes twenty-seven page specification, down to the cream. How we're gonna roast it, where we're gonna source it, how we're gonna grind it, how we're gonna gonna put Eighteen percent cream for years, no one because they they, they refine cream like they refine oil from forty percent butterfat down to zero for skim milk, and no one stopped at eighteen percent. And we felt that only eighteen percent, not eighteen percent ultra pasteurized, but only eighteen percent real cream had the mouthfeel, the richness, the coloring that was required to make a grape, Which I think are going to rival hot beverages for people in terms of people on the go, but. It's always keeping up, selling the best possible product you can in a great environment, quickly. In our business, we are quick-serve operation. We are saving people time, and we're giving them something of a treat that fills a need in their life. And that's how you do it. It's a long-winded way of answering your question, which happens to be my bed. <laughs> you probably can tell, but, but that, that, that's what we do. And, and that's the secret. And if you're interested, I can also tell you some interesting stories about the value of a brand. Yeah, please. All right. Brand to me is really a shorthand for the consumer in terms of the bundle of goods and services on offer. And what it does in the consumer's mind is to basically save them time. So they don't have to page through uh, a laundry list of options when they're trying to decide, you know, how to start the day, how to pick me ups I talked about throughout the day. It is a way for them to have this shorthand, which is saves their most precious ass- asset time. And we had a chance to measure it because mostly times you can't measure brand value. And in 1990, we purchased Mr. Donut, my uncle's old company, which was sort of a capstone to my career. And I had the chance to buy 500 and some odd Mr. Donut shops, which I did. And which the company that did. I didn't personally. And we rebadged them. We rebranded them. Same owner. Same location, pretty much the same menu, same price. Everything was pretty much the same. Took the Mr. Sign down and put the Dunkin' Sign up. In New England, where the Dunkin' brand was so much stronger than the Mr. brand, and the majority of those 500 stores were in New England. Sales went up 40%. 40%. That gives you some idea of the power of a brand. Everything else was the same. You
1: know, I, I'm a real nerd for reading Warren Buffett books, and he talks about franchise value. That's what he calls it. And he just says, you know, if somebody will walk across the street to pay a nickel more for a Coke instead of an RC Cola, that's why he wants to own Coke. And so as you describe that, I'm just like hearing Warren Buffett in my head right there.
0: Well, it's a moat. That's why he that's why he started up buying Buffalo Newspaper because that was the preeminent newspaper. And it was a moat around the newspapers until the newspaper business went south. But that probably took 30 or 40 years to happen. But that, that's, ex- he owns Dairy Queen. When I, you'll find out in the book, when I was subject to a hostile takeover, I needed to get someone to provide me with a, a big convertible preferred. And I went to Buffett first. He said the deal wasn't big enough. And he, all, he didn't want to buy in the middle of a hostile takeover. But, but I mean, he would have been an ideal buyer. Uh, but I wasn't selling. I was trying to keep the company I just wanted him to make a an investment as a, as a, in, a, in a convertible prefer would have made him a lot of money, but he, then he passed on that deal. And Luckily, GE Credit took it the next week. But but that's in the book. It's all that kind of story. So yeah, and that was my run-in with Warren Buffett.
1: You know, I when you t- when I hear you talk about consistency and having the full court press all the time to be able to have that level of service, level quality of product, and consistency. You know, I think so many CEOs and entrepreneurs would claim that would would they would say the right things, but their actions haven't created the loyalty of brands that you had created. I, I'm especially interested when you start having locations all over the place and you start having a lot of locations, how you keep that up when it's easy for some staff somewhere to maybe get a bit laxadaisical lackadaisical and, and maybe not uh, bring the passion that that I hear in your voice. Any thoughts about what to do it, in that situation?
0: It, it is a full court press, but one of the huge advantages of these systems like ours, uh, like Duncan, is the fact that we utilize the franchise system of distribution. So what we are doing is is we are, you know, at the corporate level, we've got a lot of talent in buying, marketing, data processing, digitization, you know, all of the kind of things that a big company has. And then on the front lines, we have people that come in who are putting skin in the game that are owning their own business. And they have to go through. In my day, we had a six-week training program to inculcate. I'm, I addressed every new class at Duncan Donut University. We call it DDU, and and they would learn how to make two hundred dozen donuts. So otherwise, they'd get their money back and they couldn't buy a franchise. Two weeks of management training, opening crew, help them get started. District manager for every twenty owners, so that they they would be someone who could help them plan, work together in districts in terms of what kind of marketing message they're going to have, but. Execution is a continuous element and it requires an infrastructure. It's so a little bit like the, like the Army. It's a very hierarchical organization. And then alongside it is an advisory council where they can elect representatives at district level, regional levels, and national levels to meet with us. So there's a free flow of ideas. And then each of us would travel into the field every year and visit 100 stores and meet directly with the franchise owner, travel with the district manager to find out if our management by objectives planning system was filtering, if they understood it, they knew how much profitability they were responsible for, what were their key levers they were pulling in their district. So we get to know them well in on a very close level. And then we would go to the so Those of my two favorite questions to a franchise owner would be, now if you had to do this again and invest in those days, it, it wasn't the same kind of investment as today, but in those days, it may have been fifty dollars or $100,000, would you Do the same thing if you had to do it all again. Was it worth the risk, the time, the effort, the the heartbreak? It always goes along with business, even if it's a franchise business. Even if you're in business for yourself, but you're not in business by yourself because you got a franchise or who sort of telescope those hours of apprenticeship I talked about. And the second thing is, if you were CEO, what would you do differently in the company than you would? And then we'd get back in caucus of all the information we got. And some of our best ideas came from our franchise owners, the people on the front lines.
1: Why do you think that so many business leaders pay lip service to that idea, but so few actually go spend the hours and, and there's a lot more sitting around the boardroom table telling ourselves how much how smart we are?
0: Mm, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I, I served on the board of Sonic and I served on the board of Domino's and I found they, they had as much concern and high wire act of constant concern. As, as I did. I mean, I watched and had a front row seat in Domino's is they had to pivot and they were the first to pivot to digitization, the understanding of the importance of the digital age. And they they, they put in place a $25,000 point of sale piece of equipment that allowed them to move and do direct ordering or online ordering. And I watched the sales go from 5% to, to 20%, to 30%, to 50%. I mean, that's pioneering, big investment, big leap, and Domino's, I don't know about today, but up until last year or the year before, out uh, of the last decade, it was, if not the best performing stock on the New York Stock Exchange, it was damn close to it. Well, that came because of agile and concerned, adaptable leadership. And my hat's off, and a, a phenomenal job. And I find that true. A lot of my colleagues in, in, in my industry, I'm in awe of them. I, I don't think what I did was any different than what a lot of them are continuing to do today. So, you know,
1: um, thinking specifically there of that Domino story, what do you think it was about their corporate culture, about the way they were listening to the front lines? Like, what was it about them that helped them embrace digital and that innovation before their competitors?
0: necessity is the mother of invention. We sat around, we were doing fabulously well, but it was mostly overseas. The U.S. was a static market. And the reason it was a static market was because, and you're now testing my memory because it goes back a long time, maybe 20 years, is that we, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, and maybe Little Caesars, controlled about 50% of the pizza market. And 50% of the pizza market, the rest of the pizza market, was everybody's favorite pizzeria or bar room, And we could never dent that market. And when we started to go on online ordering and Don, who is our short for the guy that talks to you, and you can do a pizza tracker in order to get your pizza. And all the things that say convenience and customization started to hit. The, the independent couldn't match those kinds of offerings. And slowly but surely, the tide turned. So we were not only doing fabulously well overseas where we didn't have all these local pizzerias. But in the United States, the market started to come alive like that, and and we started to make same-store sales growth. So I think it's a necessity. We needed to do it better and provide the consumer with something that met their needs faster. And in my case, I'll take a little bit of credit. I observed we we weren't doing quite as much volume as, as a competitor. And I opted and said, you know, when Tom Monaghan started the chain, he was in the delivery business. And and he was going into what I call D locations, into into industrial parks and places where the consumer didn't access the business. I hypothesized we could do a third more business if we put the locations in an A location where the consumer could pick up on the way home as well as get delivery. So we're going to offer in all platforms all at the same time. And that worked well. Now they have curbside. Now they have home delivery. Now they have you know, drive-through windows. Any you know, ghost kitchens they're now experimenting with. It's fundamentally being able to provide the consumer back to what I said before. Commitment, one of the things you asked me, well, what's successful? How do we grow big? Is that you, you're really committed to provide the customer and solve their problem better than the competitor. And that requires you to continually press. because consu- And consumers are going to be the beneficiaries. And they're going to vote.
1: You know, I know we're we're winding down for part one of the interview, and we're going to go straight on to part two and learn more about what's in the book. But maybe to end off part one here, I'll one of my favorite questions to ask is, and I'll give you the choice: either, what's a piece of advice you would have liked to give back, go back and give a younger version of yourself, or what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever got?
0: Best piece of advice I got happened after what I call my sophomore slump, and it's the same, same thing I would say in both cases. And basically, we started off well, and my dad tried to sell the business, as I told you. And in order to keep it from being sold, I basically had to go public quickly. I got I got seduced by a stock selling at 60 times earnings. I was 30 years old, and and I, I then decided not to be a focused company again. I was going to be a franchising business in order to keep my 50% earnings growth up. And I was reading a book by David Halberstam called The Best and the Brightest about how these Ivy Leaguers and the Johnson and Kennedy administration were administering the, the Vietnamese war and they were suffering they didn't go into the hamlets and townships and they were suffering from what he called hubris which is the Greek word for arrogance and and lo and behold I sat in that chair and I said oh my god Albert Sam's talking directly to me that's exactly me so if I had if I had to give a piece of advice I've got a lot of them but but clearly one of them is to be, be more humble. I, I had started to believe my own press clippings in terms of growth, and and it was the wrong goal I was aiming at. And when you're the leader and you aim at the wrong goal and you have the wrong strategy, I was aiming for the cliff and i going to take everybody over with me. And luckily, came to my senses in enough time to learn that. And we put in place a number of things to ensure that I didn't do that again, that I had better help, and that we set up mechanisms and policies and procedures to ensure that I got fired by the board. I had to talk my way back in. Luckily, I had figured out that I was wrong, and we began to fix it before they came to the conclusion they had enough of me, and this was when I was, like, 35. So, And then we really did learn our lesson, and we put in place great planning, and we were very crisp on strategy. And that, that was, you know, part of the reason we were successful. But, but so be humble, uh, not arrogant. God gave you two ears and one mouth. That's the old saying, because you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. You wouldn't know it by listening to me today. But not, hopefully I do a better job when I was a CEO. My, my colleagues, you know, always knew they could push back on I me. Mean, I, I came to the job as someone who loved and uh, liked the collaborative collegial environment. I'm not a command and control kind of guy. That's just not the way I'm thrown. And and luckily that's, that's true because I think that works so much better and and I was blessed by great people I had great people for twenty years that helped me build the business that's my piece of advice listen listen and be humble
1: that's one of the I asked this question all, you know we've done like four hundred and fifty episodes of this show that's one of the best answers I've ever received to that question I love that answer so everybody tune back into part two we're gonna we're gonna get some more details on this we're gonna hear what crisp strategy is and some of these things. Robert, thanks for your time. Everybody, please tune back in.